0: One of the expressions that the Apostle Paul uses several times in the book of Romans is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And what he's referring to there is that the gospel had done a very unusual thing. It had reached the Jews and it had also reached the non-Jews. It had reached the Gentiles. And we have to recognise that the Jewish culture... And Gentile culture were very different indeed. In fact, so different and diverse were these cultures that if there was any contact between these cultures, uh, it was a contact of mutual animosity, a lot of uncertainty as to what the other people were doing, a lot of distrust, a lot of bad attitudes and bad behavior. Now all of this, of course, posed a problem because the Christian doctrine of doctrine of reconciliation of individuals to God in that doctrine, there is this understanding that all people, whether Jew or Gentiles, all are alike sinners, and all are alike in need of God's grace, and all are alike in their need to come to Christ in repentance on the basis of the cross, and as it were, meet. At the cross, both Jew and Gentile, to meet Christ at the cross, and there at the cross they meet with each other. And of course, having been reconciled to God through the gospel, they then discovered what it meant to be reconciled to each other. And they were to demonstrate this reconciliation to God and reconciliation to each other in a newly formed community called the church. Now this meant that the church was totally a unique society in those days, because it was made up of people coming from entirely different cultures, people who, under any other circumstance, would have absolutely nothing to do with each other. The way that they were knit together in unity, the way that they treated one another was so, was to be so unusual and so abnormal. That people would look at that and make inquiry and ask, you know, why is it? How is it these Jews and Gentiles get together? How is it on earth that they have stopped behaving like they used to behave towards one another? How on earth can they actually begin to love one another? What is it that makes them tick? And that was to be one of the main evangelistic points that they would be able to utilize so that other people would come and understand and listen to the gospel that they preached. In other words, people were beginning to look at them and say, behold how these people love one another. Now, of course, we have to recognize that you can't just get Jew and Gentiles and bring them together. You can't just get people from diverse cultures and just bring them together and tell them to feel good about each other and just tell them you have to love one another. There's an awful lot of work to be done. Many, many principles need to be observed And that's an ongoing concern. You see, the problem is that we all come from different backgrounds. We've all been taught in different ways. We've suffered different trauma. We've imbibed various prejudices. We've all been impacted by unique circumstances. We've all been influenced by a variety of people. And because of all of that, we tend to look at things differently. This is true in the church. Okay? We're not now talking about trying to get Jew and Gentiles together like they did back at the very beginning. We're not talking about, What we're talking about is what does it take to get believers today to live together in Christian unity? Because there are big differences between us. The story is told of some old leaders in the Dutch reform denomination who heard about progress in the church in America. So they sent a delegation over to America to observe what was going on. And when the delegation arrived, they weren't really very happy about what they saw. They said that the Americans would go to church driving in air-conditioned cars. They said they seemed to wear very expensive clothes. And many were casual about the way they dressed for church. Some men didn't wear a tie or a coat. They said that the church buildings were very ostentatious. They actually had carpet on the floors. And the pews were padded. It was obvious that the churches had spent so much money on the facilities because they actually had pianos and organs in the church there's just a whole lot of things that they felt very, very uncomfortable about. So then they went home and they gave their reports. And the old Dutch Reformed church leaders, some of them burst into tears as they heard about the state of the church in America. And their tears rolled down their cigars into their beer. Now the point of the story is... That when we look at the way that the old Dutch Reformed denomination think that Christianity should be lived and the way that seemingly the American believer thinks it also should be lived, it's obvious there are major cultural differences. Furthermore, even if we just think about the way that people are brought up in one church tradition in Australia and compare that to another church tradition in Australia... Even there will us major differences. But in addition to that, if you then take people who come to Christ having had no Christian upbringing at all, no church heritage at all, and yet they come to Christ and you bring these people into the church and you try to get all these people to live together in the unity of the spirit, then you've got a big job on your hands. And yet Paul's point here in Romans 14 is that this is something that we must be working towards. So let's look into the passage and see what it has to say to us today. Let's look into God's word and see what God has to say to us today. The, th- the first thing to observe comes through is very clearly. The first point that Paul is making is a statement to this effect. that differences of opinion are inevitable. Differences of opinion are inevitable. There always will be issues among believers. There will always be perspectives and opinions on issues on which we differ. And the Apostle Paul here identifies two issues that were current in the church at the time. The first issue was the food issue. You'll remember that the Jews had very very definite views on what was appropriate food for them to eat and even how that food was to be prepared and they held very firmly to these views now these views had their origin in the old testament but the rabbis had amplified these things in a major way what happened in the early church was that many jews who'd come from such a conservative ultra-orthodox judaistic background They were now brought into fellowship with Gentiles who had a totally different approach to food. And so the situation was this. You had conservative, ultra-Orthodox, Judaistic Jews, that was their background, who had very, very strong views about food and strong limitations as to what they could and couldn't eat. And then we have in the same church gentiles who had no such limitations whatsoever see the problem was they were coming from totally different points of view now jesus of course in his attitude and his teaching challenged much of the ultra orthodox judaistic thinking of the people at the time for instance He has said a scandalous thing to them on one occasion. He said, listen, the food that you put in your mouth, that's not the thing that corrupts you. It is what is in you that is already corrupted. He said, the food that you put in your mouth, it doesn't get into your soul. And it doesn't get into your spirit. It gets into your stomach. And he then went even so far as to say that what's left of it just goes out into the waste. Food doesn't corrupt you. That's not the issue, Jesus said. Now, that was a scandalous thing to say to the Jews. And so Jesus himself was separating himself from the strong legalistic position of these ultra-Orthodox Jews at this point. Now, when the apostles began to take the teachings of Christ, and move out into the world. When they took the teachings of Christ and went amongst the Gentiles, who were very, very liberal in this area of food, they found that the Gentiles were absolutely thrilled about the teachings of Jesus, but the Jewish people weren't, or the Gentiles weren't so thrilled about what the Judaistic Jews were teaching about food. And so there is this great tension. As a matter of fact, the tension was so great that they had to organise a special council in Acts chapter 15 to uh, address this issue. And it's very interesting to see how they handled this particularly potentially volatile situation. We don't have time to go to Acts chapter 15 today, but that gives you a little bit of background of what Paul's talking about here. The first issue, upon which they had completely different views and opinions, was out of food. The second one was in respect to holy days. Again, the Jewish Christians, they come from a a history, a background in the Old Testament where they were to keep the seventh day, holy as unto the Lord. That was the Sabbath day. And again, the rabbis had come along and amplified this requirement considerably. They added all kinds of rules and regulations to it. And of course, the the Gentiles had never heard of such things and they didn't want to get into that. And this was what they were saying in Acts chapter 15. Please don't lay all those sorts of requirements on us when when we don't understand that. That's not part of us. Please don't put that on us. So here again, on this issue too of holy days and days to observe or not to observe, we are people who are thinking very, very differently. It's also interesting interesting to note that Jesus distanced himself from the ultra-Orthodox views of the Sabbath day and the interpretations of the Sabbath that the people accepted. Remember there was one day when he outraged people by healing on the Sabbath. He outraged the people by uh, telling his disciples they had permission to eat the corn as they walked through the cornfield on the Sabbath day. That was interpreted by the ultra-orthodox as breaking the Sabbath that was working and so because Jesus had toned down these things as far as the ultra-orthodox Jewish people were concerned and then the apostles took this teaching to the Gentiles who never had a clue about these things previously there is out there amongst the churches this potentially volatile mix Now, if one thing that could have very easily happened would be that the gentiles just go off and form their own church and the jews they could have continued in their church so that what we end up there with there we have one real conservative legalistic group and another more moderate liberated group but the apostle paul will have none of that he said no we, we have to learn to transcend such differences." There is a gospel that we share in common. There is a common salvation that we experience together. The truths about Christ and what he's done upon the cross. These are doctrines that we hold very, very dearly. Reconciled to God. Reconciled to each other. It's absolutely imperative that we don't just handle these things by dividing and going our separate way. The gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is better than that. Question, are there any issues in the church today? That is, opinions, points of view about things upon which Christians differ. Yes, of course there are. There always will be. And we need to be learning how to address these things appropriately. The second thing that we need to recognise, in addition to the fact that there will always be issues, is that there will always be interpretations. We have to recognise the fact that, thankfully, praise the Lord, God has given us his infallible word. We praise the Lord for his infallible truth. But we also have to acknowledge that we are not infallible interpreters. There are many factors. We have to recognise there are many factors that are at work in us which affect the way that we approach scripture, the way that we receive scripture, the way that we seek to understand Scripture. For example, take the Jewish people. Think about their background. They were coming from a background of the law, therefore they had a tendency towards legalism. They would tend to look at Scripture and they would immediately identify the legal aspects. But the Gentiles, who were in contrast to that, they were coming from a di- entirely different perspective, different background, and they would tend to be de- tend to be delighted with all the, the the wonderful news about Jesus and the liberty which is found in. And that was very much part of Paul's teaching. And so we have people receiving the same truth. Approaching the same scripture. Even listening to the same preacher. And those who would come from a legalistic background, they would put on their legalistic filter and receive it that way. And those who came from a libertarian background, they would put on their libertarian filter. And they would receive it that way. The same words. Same message, but often ending up with entirely different interpretations. And things haven't changed. Things haven't changed. That's exactly how things work today. There are subjective considerations that we can't escape, there are things that have happened in our backgrounds that affect our understanding and approach to Scripture. There are things that people have said to us. There is teaching that has impacted us. The way that we understand scripture. We cannot be totally objective always about these things. We recognize these factors. And that being the case, we have to accept the fact that there will always be issues. And there will always be various diverse interpretations of these things. Not just of the scriptures, but also certainly of things the scriptures don't address directly. And when it comes to those areas where the Bible does make no clear-cut statement, this is where it becomes particularly challenging. There are some portions of scripture, yes, they're hard to misinterpret. There are many things which are very, very straightforward. For example, just go back where we were last week, chapter 13, verse 9. For this thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal thou shalt not bear false witness thou shalt not covet and if there be any other commandment is briefly comprehended in this saying namely thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself clear-cut statements hard to misunderstand but on the other hand there are some Things about which scripture has very little to say furthermore there are other issues about which the Scripture seemingly has nothing to say or certainly not in a straightforward way and it's in those kinds of areas where issues raise their heads and there will be diversity of interpretations now the net result of this as a result of there always being issues and always being interpretation The net result of this is there will always be irritations. There will always be irritations. The Apostle Paul in this passage talks about two different kinds of people. Those who are weak and those who are strong. Those who are weak and those who are strong. He's particularly concerned how these people deal with, react, interact around the issue of food and the issue of Holy Day. Question, who's the weaker person and who's the stronger person? Well, the passage tells us. Let's have a look at it. He says that the people who have trouble handling their freedom, the people who can't handle the freedom that is there as far as eating is concerned, as far as days are concerned. God has given them freedom in this area. Christ has given them freedom, but there are people who can't handle that. They say, they they think, you know, you give people an inch, they'll take a mile. You give them freedom, they'll go overboard. You allow for liberty, it's the first step towards licentiousness. So what do they do? They don't allow themselves the freedom that the Lord provides because they've seen abuse of freedom. And so they build in safeguards. And the safeguards are built in so that they don't abuse a legitimate freedom. Now, these are the people that often... Take a stand. These are the people that often will speak up very, very forcibly. And therefore we think that's, they're the strong ones. But no. In actual fact, Paul says the opposite. People who take a stand where the Bible doesn't. People who build in rules and regulations where the Bible doesn't. People, I'm talking about good people. Serious, thoughtful, careful, caring, concerned people. Who really worry about things going too far and therefore they build restrictions in so that that doesn't happen. And accordingly they rob a lot of people of the freedom which is in Christ. Paul says they're the weak ones. That's what Paul teaches. They're the weak ones. Who are the strong ones? The strong ones are those who recognise that if God has given freedom in these areas, if there is a liberality about these things, then they... Praise the Lord, have the privilege of moving in those areas and enjoying those things. Now, this may come as a, a surprise to us. And maybe you're not convinced of my exegesis and my exposition. However, I think you'll find if you go and examine the passage that this is correct. And yet, it does come as a surprise. Now, then, what we have to recognize is that when the weak. Brethren and the stronger brethren get together there's always going to be irritations between them between them why weak people that is people who aren't comfortable with the freedom that God gives who want to build in regulations where the bible doesn't these people they will look at others and say they oh, they they're, they're the liberal they they're going liberal they're not biblical they're moving away from what the bible requires And they begin to question the dedication of these people. And sometimes they might even question the salvation of these people. They judge them. And that's not good. Paul says, don't judge. What about the strong ones? They say, well, the Bible has given freedom in these certain areas and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. What happens then? They then look at the other people who build in all these rules and regulations and they say those people are so narrow-minded. They live in a straitjacket. They're no fun at all. Whatever you suggest, they're always against it. They drive me nuts. And they begin to despise the other people. Paul says in the Word of God, says, don't despise. That's not good. And this is what happens when God's people get together. Whenever God's people get together, whenever God's called out people get together, there will always be issues. There will always be interpretations and there will always be irritations. Differences of opinion are inevitable. So how do we handle this? We've just seen how not to handle it. How do we handle this? Well, the passage tells us. The second thing that comes through loud and clear in this passage is that discernment of essentials is indispensable. Discernment of essentials is indispensable. It's the easiest thing in the world to get go off on the issues. get carried away with the issues. And then to get so tied up in the issues and to get so tied up in the intricacy of the issues that we forget the essentials. What are the essentials that we need to discern in these areas? Well, the first thing that comes through very clearly is that convictions matter more than conventions. Convictions matter more than conventions. We all have our traditions. We all have our backgrounds. We all have our conventions. That is the, uh, our understanding of the way that things should be done. You know, sometimes we might uh, hear someone say, my mother always used to say to me, and then they continue on from there. Have you ever noticed how we happily quote our mothers approvingly whenever that suits our purpose? But uh, whenever, we didn't, whenever we, we, we didn't think it was a good thing that she said, we just forget about that totally. Never quote when they're contrary. Other people say, you know, the church that I was brought up in used to, and then they go on from there. There's all, all different kinds of ways. There are very often various conventions. They may be good or they may not. They may be good or maybe not. What Paul is talking about here, here however, is that we must come to some very solid convictions. Solid convictions. Concerning what God has to say. And what God would require of us in these situations. Solid convictions. Notice the profound statement he makes in verse 5. Let every man, whether weak or strong. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Okay, That means we, we need to be convinced. About certain things. We need to be convicted about certain things. Clear unambiguous obvious clearly discern certain things which are absolute okay the the issues you know that many of them sort of lack for biblical authority okay this is the problem we don't know what the bible says about those things but the bible is very very clear about certain things about which we must have very very firm convictions paul mentions three of them in this passage number one we should agree Whenever we get in these situations of potential disagreement, potential fragmentation, we should all agree that people are significant. Conviction number one. People are significant. We need to be convinced of that. Notice the very first verse tells us, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Not with a view of judging him, not with a view of arguing with him. There are some people who come to faith and they are young in the faith. They are weak in the faith. They, they know so little. Maybe they've had enough time, but they still know so little. They are immature. And yet sometimes they're the ones who have the most to say. Often they're the ones who voice their opinions. They're always kicking up a stink about something. What do you do with them? Always causing problems. What do you do with them? We're better off without them. Do we just reject them? No, that's not what we do can't do that because if they're in the faith doesn't matter how weak they are they are significant they need to be treated well don't reject them paul said the word of god says receive them receive them people are significant notice in verse three it says that god has received them god has accepted them now how can we reject whom god has accepted how can we reject whom god has accepted We can't. People are significant. There needs to be a conviction with us as we work our way through all these kinds of things. Whatever's going on, people are significant. Notice also verse 15. It says that Christ died for them. Not only does the gospel show us how much God loves us, but going over the gospel again, it reminds us of how we are to view others also, because God loves others as well. This is how much God loves them. And so therefore, you know, how can we reject the person whom God loves and has accepted and, 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 and welcomes? Christ has died for them. But not only that, it goes on to say in verse 8 that this person is actually the Lord's. They belong to the Lord. Now let's put all this, this together. Okay? He is in the faith. God has accepted him. Christ has died for him and redeemed him and now owns him. He belongs to the Lord. Now, maybe this person totally agrees with you. Maybe this person won't listen to your viewpoint. You try to teach them you know, how they can they can grow in this area and get a biblical understanding of this, but they're not interested in that. They don't, not, don't want to be confused by facts. They're still significant. And this is more important than the issue. Okay, This is more important than the issue that is if the issue is obviously one in which um, the Bible is ambiguous about and some teaching and, and understanding is required here they may have reached a different conclusion we understand that but the but the, that, that issue is not the most important thing the most important thing is the person the person is significant we must hold that as a conviction. The second conviction that we have to hold to is that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the master. Jesus is our master. Jesus is their master and we are not. So Paul says, you know, why why are you judging someone else's servant? He's not your servant. You're not his master. Jesus is his master. We're not. Verse 7, none of us liveth to himself. No man dieth to himself. Verse 8, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Again, Paul takes us back to the heart of the gospel. What he's talking about here is is, is Christians who have trouble getting on with each other. They're, They're sort of debating about different issues. And what does Paul does, he takes us back to the gospel. If we're having struggle in these areas, what we need to go back to the gospel, understand what God has done in the gospel. Jesus died. He takes us back to the cross. Jesus died and he rose again. Therefore, Paul says, that, makes, that means Jesus is the Lord. He's Lord of life. He laid down his own life. He's Lord of life. He's Lord over death. He raised himself from the dead. And if we want the Lord Jesus to be the, our Lord in death and seal our eternal destiny, then we make, better make sure that Jesus is Lord in life too. And this is an important thing. Because a lot of people, they do want Jesus to be Lord of their death, but they don't want him to be Lord of their life. The Apostle Paul says, If Jesus is Lord of your death, and if he is Lord of your life, then show that Jesus is Lord of your life. By adhering to the principles which he outlines here about the relationships with other people with whom we have disagreements. This This is the connection here. This is how the gospel comes into this moment. This is the connection. Jesus died and rose again. That means he is Lord. He is Lord of your life. And if he is Lord of your life, then prove it in the way that you live. Particularly in the way that you live with people amongst whom you have disagreements with over issues. That's the principle. This has to be a conviction for us. Putting it all together, if people are significant, and they are, if Christ is Lord and he is, then that colours my approach to relationships with people in the controversial issues within the church. There's a third thing here, a third conviction that we must hold. We're to recognise that all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it nought, thy brother? Why, why, why do you judge? Why do you despise? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Please notice the word himself. It may be necessary to underline it. That may be helpful. I'll tell you Why? Every single believer is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins. Our sins have been judged in Christ, dealt with, we're forgiven, we're justified freely by his grace if we've committed our life to Jesus Christ. But that does not mean, however, that we're now free to go and live any way we like because after our sins have been forgiven, we are now obligated to live as unto the Lord, Romans 12 verse 1. Knowing that, Romans 14, we shall give account of ourselves to the Lord. I want, you, I want to just point out that the expression used for servants there in verse four is not the word doulos. It's not another word. awesome translated servant, huperetes, it's a word that talks about a, a household domestic servant. And the picture is this: that whilst the Lord is Lord in heaven, ruling and reigning from heaven, I am down here as His domestic servant. And when I die and stand before my master, I will have to give account of my domestic service from the time that I was born again up until that moment that I appear in his presence. Now notice the importance of this. Everyone shall give account of himself to God. What would it be like if every one of us gave account of everyone else? Can you, can you imagine what it would be like if we stand before the Lord and he says, okay, give me an account of everyone else. Would that be fun? <laughs> There's something even more challenging here. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And knowing that, no ambiguity about that at all. That is, that is fact. That is settled. That will happen. As sure as we are here today, that will happen. Having convictions about that is absolutely essential. Because I tell you, you know, a lot of the things that we do day by day, we, we have no regard to, to that day when we stand before the Lord. No regard. There will always be issues. There will always be interpretations. There will always be irritations. How do we deal with them? By developing convictions, three indispensable things. People are significant. Jesus is the Lord. And we will all give an account of their lives, our stewardship of the judgment seat of Christ. But not only are convictions more important than convention, Paul goes on to say building up is more appropriate than tearing down. Verse 13 says we should avoid the things which cause others to stumble. Okay, we've got an issue going on here. Okay. Think about this. We've got to avoid things that cause others to stumble. Verse 21. Avoid things that offend. Avoid things that weaken. Verse 19. We should be committed to those things which serve to build each other up. It's the easiest thing in the world to tear down. It's much more difficult to build something up. Someone once says that any jackass can kick the barn down. But it takes a craftsman to build one. And when you begin to deal in issues that arise in the church, there's no shortage of, of people who knock it down. But what, delight, what a delight it is to find people, craftsmen, who are committed to building it up. That's essential. That's essential. In conclusion, verses 14 to 23, we see discipline of attitude is imperative. Discipline of attitude is imperative. I want you to notice four imperatives that come through very clearly. We'll just touch on them and then we'll be done. Firstly, be convinced. Be convinced. Verse 5 says, Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind about what the scripture says. Get into the scriptures. Know what the scripture says. Be fully persuaded about what the scripture says. Okay? Your interpretation may not agree with someone else. That's okay. But be fully persuaded in your own mind. This is what the Bible says. And then in respect to other, other issues that are not addressed in the Bible. Okay? Be fully persuaded in your own mind about those sorts of things as well. Come to an understanding of what you, how you think that issue. And what, what you think scriptures apply to that. Sure, so understand people have different views. But it's incumbent upon all of us to come to our conclusion ourselves in our own minds not just because someone else said this or not just as a knee-jerk reaction against someone else but to take the matter seriously to think it through seriously as best we can from the word of god be convinced in your own mind there's an attitude there paul encourages it doesn't mean that having been convinced in your own mind you then get on your high horse and you criticize everyone else having a different view Secondly, be concerned. Be concerned. Are you concerned? First and foremost, are you concerned when you see brothers and sisters arguing and disagreeing about some issue outside of the scriptures? But they're arguing about, it, they're disagreeing about it, and one's judging another, and someone's despising someone else about this issue. The situation has now become very divisive. Are you concerned and when you see that don't turn a blind eye. Don't just walk away. Be concerned. As, as Paul is concerned, Paul writes to address that he's concerned. We should be concerned about those things, which the gospel really does transcend. We're not understanding the gospel if we allow those things to go on. Are we concerned? Not only concerned about the individual, but also concerned about God's kingdom as well. In verse 20, Paul says, destroy not the work of God because on the basis of these issues. Verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, or you're going to add any other issues, all those other issues. What is it? It's righteousness, it's peace, it's joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, when you get into issues with people and you begin to address them and deal with them, make sure, make sure that your prevailing concerning this conversation is that the kingdom of God would not only be established, but it would be strengthened in the way that you deal with this issue. And it will happen that will happen if we deal with it in righteousness and with a desire to establish peace even with those with whom we disagree and and to be joyful about it. Be joyful about it. Be concerned. Thirdly, be conciliatory. Are you conciliatory? Is your approach likely to placate and pacify? Then you'll need to be prepared to give. You'll need to be prepared to bend. You'll need to be prepared to flex. There's a very interesting statement here. We go back to the weaker and the stronger brother. What do we do when we have a weaker brother who feels that there are certain things that shouldn't be done, but we have other people who say there's there's freedom there, we could certainly do those things. What do we do about this sort of situation? Do we just push on and push the weaker brother out the way and just ignore him and trample over him? Is that what we do? The apostle Paul doesn't give us that freedom. He puts the onus of responsibility on the stronger brother, the one who has the freedom, the one who doesn't have scruples about these things. And this is what he says to him. That person who may be immature, that person who is certainly insecure at this point, that person who doesn't have the freedom that you enjoy, is very significant, he's very, very important, and you you allow for that, you give in to him because he certainly is not able to give in to you. That That is uniquely a Christian approach. That is uniquely a Christian approach. In verse 20 to 23, he says, If you know you have got freedom in a particular area, but that freedom is potentially offensive to someone else. Don't flaunt that freedom. Don't offend them. Don't upset them. Don't irritate them. Don't provoke them. But for the sake of their well-being, and for the sake of the kingdom, be conciliatory towards him. And this puts the onus on the stronger brother, doesn't it? Yes, we, there is recognition of personal freedoms. But there must be the curtailing of our personal rights. And yet there is also an onus that rests upon the weaker brother as well. Why are we conciliatory towards him, assuming that we're the stronger one? To just encourage him and reinforce, reinforce him in his weakness? Does that sound right? No. Okay, we're not conciliatory towards him to encourage him in his weakness and to continue in his weakness. But we are that way towards him in order to build him up. To build him up. Okay, That's what we've got to be concerned about. It's not just a case of, you know, you think that, okay, well, I think differently. Uh, we just have to agree to de- differ. That settles it, we're done. That's not the way. Any, anyone can do that. What has to happen... Is there's an issue where you have a weaker brother and a stronger brother. And the stronger one has to be conciliatory towards the weaker one. And he does that in order that the weaker one might remain open. Because, because of the fairness he's received. Because of the way that he's been regarded. The way that he's been treated. The way that he's been welcomed. The way that he's been accepted. Even though there's a difference of opinion here. We're conciliatory towards him. Because that means he'll remain open. And be encouraged to go forward. And to give a listening ear when someone comes along and s- seeks to instruct them. In the ways the Lord will perform perfectly. This is the whole point to build people up. And if you don't do that, something else will happen. You'll finish up with a church that is governed on the principle of the tyranny of the weaker brother. I think there are many churches that never get anywhere, they don't make any progress, they don't make any changes for the positive. Because whenever you talk about such things, there's a group of people that say, no, no, can't do that, can't do that. That's going beyond. It's usually the weaker brother. What is needed is that the stronger brethren be conciliatory towards the weaker brother, so that they are warmed and encouraged and brought along into growth and maturity. And there's a growing and a maturing on both sides. Be convinced, be concerned, be conciliatory. Finally, be considerate. Consider the fact that what you say has an impact. Consider the fact that what you do has an impact, whether you're the stronger one or whether you're the weaker one. Consider the ramifications as you get involved in those issues. The strong must consider the impact they make. The weak must consider the influence they exert. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that because of the gospel, there are people who've been reconciled to God. They've come to Christ. They know Christ as their Savior. They know Christ as their Lord. And they're in the process of being transformed. They're in the process of having their minds renewed. And how do we know how we're going with that? How do we know how we're making progress with that? You can tell how our minds are being renewed because one of the demonstrations of our renewed mind is that attitudes will change. There'll be a change in our attitudes when we, get it, when we start talking about those, those kinds of issues. There'll be a change in our attitude in dealing with people who differ from us and those kinds of issues. There'll always be issues. There'll always be interpretations. There'll always be irritations. But as the Lord so works in our life through his word, as our understanding of the work of the gospel and the implications of the gospel increases, as our gratitude for God increases, As we're conformed more to Christ and less to the world, as our minds are renewed, we'll see it working out in the way that we relate to people with whom we have differences in the church. And the fact that we continue with all the diversity, there is unity amongst all the diversity. This is one of the best advertisements for the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for... Uh, your word, thank you, that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, Father, I do thank you for shining the light on this matter for us. And Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to know those convictions that we need to hold to. People are significant, Jesus is the Lord. We'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Building up is more important than tearing down. Lord, this is what you teach us in your word and I pray that we'd be more and more governed by your word so that so that, when we begin to address things that the Bible doesn't specifically speak about, at least we, we know what the Bible says about us and how we should behave towards one another, how we should consider one another, be patient with one another. Lord, please work this in us and work it out through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.